Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Idea Dinner. I'm David Rosenthal from Acquired, and I am one of your four co-hosts for the evening. So what is the Idea Dinner, you ask? Well, my fellow Acquired co-host, Ben Gilbert, and I have teamed up here with Packy McCormick from Not Boring and Mario Gabrielli from The Generalist to serve up a few fresh public and private market investing ideas to your proverbial table. <laughs> Along, of course, with plenty of side dishes of fun and banter between the four of us. We've been doing these on Twitter Spaces, and one of the great things about that versus our normal formats is that we get to interact live with you all and hear your ideas and feedback as we go. So this dinner was recorded on March 16th, 2021. Unfortunately, we had a glitch about halfway through and couldn't capture all of the audience questions in this recording, but we were able to salvage some in post-production and are working on it for next time. Speaking of next time, you should all follow us on Twitter to find out when that is happening. Links to all of our bios are in the show notes below. You should absolutely click through and join us live then. All right, with that, on to the dinner. All right. All right. Ooh, this is fancy. It, it is fancy. I'm hey, the creator economy seems to be really booming. Someone should write about that or like... Uh... <laughs> Look at all these tools. This Cambrian explosion. Yeah. Cambrian explosion has become one of those terms that I can't read or hear with a straight face. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> too many things are a Cambrian explosion. Does anybody know, like, does anybody on this call know what Cambria is? Like what, what the, what Cambrian is referring to? Isn't it a period of, you know, biological life sort of vaguely coming into being. I don't know. I felt like other people here were were about to to say something cleverer than I just did. That was I it. I know the band Coheed and Cambria, and that's my. Uh, <laughs> that's I've got. I think that's the reference. Yeah. <laughs> the old Coheed and Cambrian explosion. Speaking of Cambrian explosions, Mario, you got some. Big news, NFT, man, congrats. Thanks, uh, I'm not even sure if it's congratulations worthy as much as it is just like, wow, this was this was wild. Um, so uh, anyway, I'm very Mario, grateful. Catch us up, what, yeah, what did you do? Up. I know you did something with an NFT, but I have no idea what that was. I, uh, I NFT'd myself in a way. Um, <laughs> I uh, turned, our Coinbase analysis that we're going to release this week um, into, or we crowdfunded for it um, via Mirror, which allows people to essentially sort of uh, give ETH in exchange for generalist tokens. Um, and then once we create the analysis, um, we're going to turn that analysis along with sort of three pieces of corresponding artwork from Jack Butcher into NFTs and sell them and see what happens. Um, and so it was really, I mean, we, we sold out sort of, we raised the full 20 ETH in about 30 minutes, um, which I was like very much like, oh, this might, this might not, we might have not hit the cap on this. That's, um, what the, that's like almost $40,000, right? Yeah, um, which we split between different people. So it's like half goes to Jack to create his work 
uh, a quarter goes to the generalist and a quarter goes to the contributors on the S1 club for, for this round. And then we minted an extra like 10% on top of that, that goes to members of the generalist community and stuff. So, um, so I'm like a total novice here. When you say generalist coin or generalist tokens, did, like, did you ICO the generalist? Are we past that phase? And now, like, what, what does it mean? No, no. I can say right now on this is priceless. Like I, you're I'm not allowed to talk. I am behind. Yeah, you're not allowed to say no, it's, ICO. It's, I mean, this is going to like quickly get out of my depth, but um, basically it is really more like a Kickstarter than it is an ICO. Um you know, it's like you're like backing the creation of this work. And um, I think Jesse Walden summarized like Mirror Well, he called it Patronage Plus. It's like you're supporting the creation of this work and like maybe there's some upside to it. Um, and so by holding the generalist token, you, you know, have, have a ticket to that upside to a certain extent if we end up selling these NFTs above 20 ETH. Fascinating. It was, it was, it was weird. It was wild. Um, I'm like, I don't know what to do with like this too- information that this is possible. <laughs> like, I'm like, well, okay, well, what does that mean for like how we build our various content empires, so to speak, our little mini medium media empires? Like, yeah, what do we do with this information? now? <laughs> yeah, that's totally. Well, do you anticipate doing this in the future? Like should, should, do you think all the pieces of content that you create will be tokenized? Uh, certainly not all pieces of content, but like, I don't know. I was thinking we're going to see Robinhood, I'm sure, in probably two to three weeks. Like, would a dope Robinhood NFT be super fun? Where it like, you know, riffs <laughs> on, you know, deep fucking value and Vlad Tenev. Like, I don't know. Maybe that would be cool. Um, well, you can also do for the S1 Club, you could do NFTs that do different things like, as on the artist side that do different things depending on the outcome. So if it pops on the first day, it turns into like a celebration of Robin hood. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a good idea. Um, so yeah, I, I, I honestly don't know. I'm keen not to like overuse it. Um, and cause I think, you know, there's a potential to erode some degree of trust, but yeah. I think if you do it the right way, maybe it just like, becomes an exciting experiment that people are are keen to be a part of. So I, I look forward to the uh, idea dinner token getting minted any day now. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Packy, what about you? You had a big month. You back from Miami in the cold depths of New Jersey now again? I am in the cold depths of a New Jersey basement back from Miami. If you're live on the stream, which it looks like some people are, uh, you can see that I've gotten almost no sun out of Miami or it's, it's all eroded. But yeah, good month. Good month over here. Happy to be back in the basement, living, living the dream. What, what was it like down there? Like, do do um, do you think there's actually a viable tech ecosystem down there now? Or so I gotta say, I didn't do much hobnobbing. I think there's a viable lifestyle down there. I think the way that we're hoping to do it is because I take on the risk of writing a newsletter, the upside has to be that I get to get some more flexibility, which is I think we'll probably live down there maybe a month to a year when it gets particularly cold up north. Um, but who knows? That That's kind of what we were saying in the heat of the moment. But it's nice to be able to walk around outside in the middle of February in shorts and 
all the very obvious things. And then there are a bunch of people, but I would imagine it'll be maybe like one spoke in a bunch of companies, hubs and spokes. So wait, you're saying you went to Miami and you just like enjoyed the warm weather. There was no Barry's boot camp. You didn't like take a selfie with the mayor. Like you just went to like, you know, Florida. I did no content around the mayor. I, I mean, yeah, none of that. I feel like it was a massively wasted opportunity, but yeah, just down there for the weather. Anyone here supposed to trust you as a technology influencer? I have never, ever, ever said that anyone should trust me as a technology <laughs> Which brings us to our disclosure for tonight. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we should. Well, uh, I, I suppose before disclosing, like, what, what is this? What are we doing? Uh, we, should, we should have our, like, you know, welcome back to the technology, uh, or what is this? Welcome back to the idea dinner, where uh, each of us uh, try aggressively to... Uh, either talk our own books or not talk our own books when we feel too bashful to do so, uh, to hype our own content or to venture into some brand new companies that we have never covered on any of our platforms before. But importantly, these are all ideas that we think are good, that we want to pitch to one another to get feedback on, to hone and refine. Uh, we each have come armed with one public company idea and one private company idea of, uh, you know, diff different companies that we think are interesting. And my, again, judging from sort of how we defined it last time, I'm thinking we think the value of these will go up in the future. That's kind of the big, uh, that's the big take home. Am I, am I no right? one said that to me. <laughs> <laughs> that is the goal. That is the goal. Uh, the other thing that we are armed with here is drinks, most importantly. We decided that while we're calling this the idea dinner, actually eating food while you know streaming is is probably ill advised. But uh, but we all have a drink. So. You do indeed. What are we drinking tonight, gentlemen? I'll go first since I'm the most boring. I have a, a Stella Artois. Ooh, nice. Step up from the White Claw last time. <laughs> well, that was very on brand for Miami. Yeah, exactly. I too have taken a step up. Uh, we're now, last time I had an unnamed uh, Costco Prosecco, I'm now drinking a cupcake Prosecco. So uh, uh, while it has a name, it's not a good one. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I, um, I've gone in a different direction <laughs> since you guys pilloried me last time. For my... <laughs> we have a new wine spotter. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm just drinking beer this time. I'm drinking a Guinness. Oh. Always, always a good standby. I want to just say that, well, Ben, actually not so much, no offense, but the two of you really were right on for the my other two choices tonight. I couldn't find a Stella at my local shop, and I was this close to getting a Guinness, but I was like, I don't know, it's maybe a little heavy. So instead, I plumped for something I haven't tried before called Genesee Beer, created proudly brewed since oh, 1878. Man. Wow. I uh, I drank Jenny Light in college. I think Genesee is like among some of the lowest <laughs> worst beer that a, a person can drink. I, if, I, if I recall it, it almost has a slimy taste to oh, it. Oh no, I I'm enjoying the flavor very much, but I, I don't think it's high quality. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually have right. two in case we really get oh, after wow. it tonight. So All right, so we've established uh uh, to start us off here, that we are—it's uh, a group of of a quality obsessed folks on the call today to come with their very best ideas. Let's see who. Should, where, well, David, can you bring us the disclaimer? 
Yeah, yeah. So disclaimer, as always, this is uh, hopefully entertaining, hopefully informative, but not official investment advice. So should you choose to take positions in anything that we discussed tonight, you do so at your own risk. We think that they might go up, but we have no idea. Uh, we may or may not already hold positions in anything we talk about. Um, and uh, you should make your own decisions and do your own work. But hopefully we'll have a good time. We're going to try and keep it a little briefer so that we can also get some ideas from the audience. I know we have some some good folks in the mix, uh, Ian Borthwick, Alex, so, some some friendly faces in there that I would uh, I'd love to hear from. So. Yeah, people get your get your ideas ready and raise your hands at the end of the at the end of us talking and we'll bring up some of the better ideas from the audience. It's the beauty of spaces versus also, podcast. Yeah. If Mario just named you, it means you have to stay until the end uh, because he's expecting you to raise your hand and it would be a shame if you weren't here for it. I, I think, think he literally left, left just <laughs> now. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, should we um before we dive into this time should we review our picks from last time yes i think that's good uh let's see so last time i had bitcoin as my public pick which i think immediately went down pretty precipitously after i uh selected it but is now up so I'm, i'm feeling good about that and my private pick was a great company i'm an angel investor in called kettle which does um reinsurance for climate related um, uh, coverage of like specifically for residential fire risk in California. Great company, um, raised a seed from True and a crew last year and um, doing great stuff. What if we can't remember our picks? <laughs> well, you told me this afternoon that your private pick was SpaceX. So we know that. That's right. Right. I know. SpaceX. I remember yours. More obvious uh, than than David's Bitcoin pick, I picked SpaceX. Uh, and you're public, and then, you're public times. That was right. That's right. Because I was rehashing acquired content, like uh, I think we agreed not to do, and then I went ahead and did. <laughs> uh, I We're went. Both gonna go up. <laughs> Sorry, Mario. No, all good. I went with the Bridgetown SPACs one and dos, and um, I don't think either of them has fared very well so far. So that's not a, a good time for specs. Yeah, it's a bit of a rough time for specs. I'm I am still holding on to them, so uh, take that for what for what you will. Um, and then the uh, private pick was Reddit um, because I had just gone deep on it with with Greg Eisenberg and uh, remain remain very interested in that company. Reddit is fascinating. We can't yeah, wait. Are they gonna, are they going to go public this year? I sort of doubt it, but. Maybe in the next 18 months feels possible. I don't know. We actually have some Reddit folks in the audience, so they absolutely won't tell us, but... Uh... I'm sure they'll chime <laughs> in with that information. <laughs> and I, uh, I went home team, and Twitter was my public pick. The next morning, it shot up 10%. It is now down a little bit, but just unbelievably, unbelievably long and bullish Twitter uh, over the... Not to mention, Pecky, it, it went up 10% because they did the exact like thing that you predicted they would do the next morning. 
Pretty you spend good. enough time in the app, you'll you'll start to get a sense for things. But yeah, I've, I've spent a lot of time looking at Twitter uh, and and still absolutely love Twitter um, as as a pick, but can't use the same pick twice. On the private side, I went with a company called Composer. Uh, they have started since onboarding beta users. Feedback has been great. Composer makes it easy to build hedge fund quality automation with a few drag and drop moves on desktop. Mobile, they don't think is right for that kind of investing um, and could not be more excited about that product. I think it actually performs better in choppier markets uh, when things don't just go up. I think Robinhood performs very well when things just go up. Uh, and so I'm, you know, to the extent that we continue to see chop, I'm very excited about Composer. Also, let's not forget that the Composer co-founder co-authored a piece with you that went fucking viral. That was by almost by two x the most popular piece we've ever ever written on Excel. So cool. Because yeah, Nailed I mean it. it's people love Excel. It's, it's as simple as that. We found similar. It was a few years ago we did an episode on the history of PowerPoint, which, unbeknownst to many, was actually an acquisition by Microsoft. And um, their first, their first, yeah, and started the Microsoft uh, Silicon Valley campus which became Sand Hill Road, like as a result wow. of that, like the office, the, the PowerPoint office was on Sand Hill. Um, but yeah, people love it. Like people go nuts for office products. It's, I think people have spent, a certain group of people have spent so much time in those products getting good at them that they're just never ever gonna switch. So that was the last time, all good, all great picks. Um, let's start with public again this time who wants to go first man we're all we're all feeling really ready i'll, I'll do it i'll break the seal go for it um all right you i got two beers you get one for one for a public pick and one for private pick <laughs> yes um i am gonna be rolling into town uh in the barry diller empire uh of iac home of you know the one of the coolest office buildings in new york frank gary joint uh which i think how we should have referred to all of his buildings as a frank gary joint um and just a fascinating <laughs> no go for it david oh i was because uh, i had a silly like dad style joke there that i'm it's, it's <laughs> that is what we are here for <laughs> That's the point of this. Um, Listen, lots of joints at crazy angles in. Uh, oh, uh, I'm, I know, I know, it's bad. No, nope, okay. I'm glad we, I'm glad we took the time for that. Um, yeah, so IAC, um, I got really fascinated by the company last year. I wrote a piece, sort of uh, trying to cover the Barry Diller playbook a little bit, which is, you know, this repeated ability of IACs to find these small niche markets growing incredibly fast, sort of pick a front runner, use that front runner to load up a bunch of other companies behind it, and then spin that off. And they've done that you know, several different times. Um, the most recently was, was really with Match Group where you know, they, they bought Match when online dating was really uh, a tiny space, uh, almost almost the 90s, right? When they I don't, I don't think it was quite that um, far back, but um, fairly, yeah, fairly small. I think they bought you know dozens and dozens of companies along the way, and then spun it out, obviously, into a, a very successful business that I think many people are excited about uh, post 
post-COVID. Um, and I think they are primed for another big moment now um, with Vimeo. And so uh, I bought in when I wrote that piece that the stock has been up, sort of, I think, 45% since I um, made my little play um, <laughs> with my little money on public. Um, and um, I think it's going to go, you know, going to likely go higher. They just six days ago released sort of their, their most recent monthly reports. And the numbers look really, really good. Vimeo had revenue growth of 54% month over month and subscriber growth of 26% month over month. That Whoa, is the what is driving that 54% month over month growth yes. for a 15 year old product. Yes. And it's the fourth straight month of revenue growth at 54% or higher for Vimeo. Uh, so Whoa. the company, the, the product is just like crazy accelerating. Um, Wait, and, what's the reason there? There's got to, this, this just isn't like, they don't fall into this. There's got to be some crazy specific reason for that growth. I mean, I think they've been a little bit more aggressive with the product. I would assume there's some like good pandemic tailwinds, um, behind it too. Um, but that's actually, you know, just part of the the IAC growth story, in my opinion, and then I'll, I'll be quiet and try and wrap it up. But um, Dot Dash, which is really sort of like the little sub brand under which a ton of other media sub brands sit, um, is, is, is also up a ton, up 45% month over month. In January, it was up 54%. So it is slightly decelerating. But broadly speaking, um, I think there is plenty of room left to run. And I think whenever Vimeo does spin out, that will be like a very exuberant story um, that people will be excited to own as as a pure play, like YouTube alternative, essentially. So that's my pick, IAC. That's like hot seed stage company growth month over month as a 15 year old, you know, public company subsidiary. Bananas. It's a good product too. The, um... My wife Jenny works at uh, San Francisco Ballet, and um, you know they've had to do <laughs> completely reinvent how you know the ballet works over the past year. Um, and they've used a bunch of different products, but d done a lot of stuff on on Vimeo, and I think been happy with it. But you know, at a minimum, they're they're now paying Vimeo a lot of money that they never would have thought to do before. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think it's a lot of a lot of folks like that, and you know, I've, I'm sure we'll see maybe some slowdown post pandemic, but I think broadly they're writing plenty of, of secular trends that will continue. Do we know anything about the conglomerate discount on IAC? I know that's a favorite topic of the acquired podcast generally. Yeah. Um, and what does it look like? <laughs> what does it look like for IAC? I, I do not know. Do you guys know? I don't know. Let's see. With their, um... Ooh, that could be. We could we could make homework assignments for the idea dinner. Yes. <laughs> someone someone has an idea. We we throw out questions like this, and then we uh, we start with some follow up on the next time. I, I think it. we should give the homework to listeners. <laughs> <laughs> to be clear, well, let's okay. bring the fans into this. You know, let's bring exactly. <laughs> Without knowing any of the details about revenue, all the various stuff they own, you know. Mario you, Mario, you may know more than me, but even then, um, just like eyeballing this, it's only a $21 billion market cap company Yeah, relative to all the stuff in there. That feels uh, likely very discounted. 
Vimeo is projected to, to be worth maybe $8 billion by itself, um, which, again, strikes me as like relatively conservative um, without having done a huge amount of research on it. But then factoring Dotdash and Angie and all these other things um, that... Angie's is a great story, too. Yeah, yeah totally. Um, I like the pick. All right. Wait, thank you. Speaking, speaking of NFTs, Shlom's just joined just sold his NFT for 30 ETH. So round of applause to audience member Shlom. Kudos. Yeah. It, it is unbelievable what is happening with all this space. It really is. I have a hard time. I'm sorry. I just have a hard time. Like, like, a, like <laughs> if this was a few years ago and someone came in and you were like, let's give a hand to this person who just ICO'd their company. Like everyone just give a round of applause for this. Like, no, no I way. know it's not the same problem. It's not the same thing. <laughs> it's not the same. It's an artist who made something dope and got paid for it. Fucking respect. I, am a, I love I'm it. I'm 100% on board. I have a little bit of like uh, trepidation about like the way history will look upon some of the things in this era and, and sort of look at us like, what were you guys celebrating there? I think yeah, that's the heard of... of any modernist art. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I was going to say Picasso, but modernist art as well. Um, yeah. I like think it's a I like chart worth 60 million. The banana with the tape. Mm -hmm. um, I actually, Packy, unless this applies to you too, I might go next because I also have a conglomerate that I want. You go. Okay. Keeping on theme here. My pick, which I'm very surprised none of us did last time, my uh, public market pick is Tencent. Uh, <laughs> oh, did I steal your pick, Packy? No, but I was going to do Tencent. We all love Tencent. Me too. <laughs> Wait, Ben, were you going to do Tencent? Uh, it was my backup pick. It was the one that I, I, I left on the table today because I was like, ah, everyone knows we're all super long Tencent. Uh, no, well, no surprise among um, folks who, who follow any of us that were big Tencent admirers, but um, Ben and I just did a big episode on Meituan where Tencent owns 20% of the company. And, you know, I've been long on Tencent for a while, um, had a position in the company, but I was just updating the valuation metrics in preparation for today. So basically you can think about the core business of Tencent, you know, WeChat and all their operating business. Like it's, it's Facebook. It's almost exactly Facebook, almost mm -hmm. exactly the same amount of revenue same amount of growth so it's uh about 70 80 billion in annual revenue growing 30 percent ish a year 40 percent ebitda margins bananas facebook's actually a little higher which is even crazier um but obviously like you know the tam is huge even just within china for wechat not to mention all the other stuff tencent does okay that's great um current market cap for tencent is a hair under 800 billion Facebook is also about 800 billion. So it's basically, you know, like, okay, great. If you like Facebook, you should like Tencent. But <laughs> Tencent also owns, you know, a, a, a small selection of the over 800 investments in companies, other companies that they have. 20% of Meituan, 17% of PDD, 19% of Kuaishou, 18% of JD, 5% of Tesla, 9% of Spotify, 12% of Snap, 40% of Epic. Like the list just goes on and on and on. Even just what I just said there is worth over 200 billion alone at current prices. They have, there was an article in the information, I think last week or this week, 
that came out that said of the 800 total investments they have, over 160 of their companies are valued at a billion dollars or more, <laughs> so, which is just like, you know, these guys are like, we talked about this on the Meituan episode we did, but like, they're like Sequoia plus, you know, Facebook plus, oh, nice, Mario. They're like Sequoia plus Facebook. They're kind of Apple-like in a way because they sort of control the App Store to the extent that you think of, of the um, the mini apps in uh, in WeChat yep. as, you know, like Apple's App Store. They're also sort of like Berkshire Hathaway, the way that they're <laughs> like taking these like meaningful non-control positions and just holding forever. And they're totally happy with not having control. So, okay, two quick things. So why is this stock, you know, trading at whatever metric you want to think about? Like, it's probably fairly valued for a business, but the market is essentially valuing, either va undervaluing the business or valuing their portfolio at zero. Mm -hmm. um, I think the big risk everybody's concerned about right now is antitrust in China and what's happening with Alibaba. Um, I'm obviously not an expert here, and I think they're is definitely some risk that the government will force you know divestitures or something um take unfriendly actions towards tencent but i think unlike alibaba i think tencent's in a much better spot so pony ma the ceo and the whole company you know they are not like jack ma they're not <laughs> you know they're not trying to make waves they very much work with the ccp um wechat is a big part of how the government thinks about running the internet in China. Um, the other thing that I hadn't quite thought about before today, thinking about this, maybe playing into what's going on, Alibaba, of course, listed on the New York Stock Exchange. Um, Tencent, though, is listed on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. Mm -hmm. There's an ADR here, but it is a natively listed Chinese company. Um, I think there may be some part of what... Can you define ADR for us, David? It's a, a tracking stock that exists for in the U.S. So there's a... It's um, what? T-C-E-H-Y, I think, is... There's a couple of them that are the tracking stocks in the U.S. Um, I actually own directly on the Hong Kong exchange because I was like, oh. I, I, <laughs> I don't want to mess around. <laughs> no, it's just a little flex. <laughs> Anybody can do it. Interactive brokers, great, great brokerage. Um, but then the other thing I wanted to say, the real value play on Tencent, which you guys know about, which if you really want to go down the rabbit hole, is buying Prosys shares which process is the spin out out of Naspers, which uh -huh. owns 31% of Tencent. So talking about conglomerate discounts. So process is a basically holding company like IC of the former Naspers digital assets. It's traded on the Amsterdam stock exchange. You can also buy directly. Um, and their market cap is what I wrote it down. Their market cap is currently uh 182 billion but just their 31 percent of tencent is worth more than that <laughs> uh is worth like another 50 percent more than that that they're trading at a discount plus they own a bunch of other stuff so the deep deep value play is go by process wow i love that did you also mention it when you were listing the tencent assets the nice little setup they have with roblox Oh, no. Yeah, that's right. 50% JV in China with Roblox. 
Yeah, another nice little kicker. Yeah, they own. Well, I mean, that's what happens when you play nice with the government in China. Is you get to be one of the approved ways that people are allowed to come to market, and their their fee for that is a uh, very small forty nine percent of your revenue for uh, being one of those on ramps to the economy there. So, I mean, yeah, pretty pretty powerful position to be in. There's a good chance that Epic alone in a decade is worth ten cents market cap today, and they own forty percent of it. And Roblox too, so it's like you know yeah, they got okay. all their bases covered. <laughs> Should we just stop there for the night? <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right, everyone, this has been great. Uh, this is the idea dinner. <laughs> if anyone has a bear case on Tencent, though, uh, I, I want to hear it either from the group here or or in the audience later. So for a little while, because I've I've also on Tencent for a bit, and watched the the Arc emails come in at the end of the day. Kath was long Tencent and buying and buying, and she's been selling off. I don't know why, mm. and there's all sorts of reasons that that may be the case, but Arc has been selling off Tencent, or had been at least selling off Tencent. So I don't okay, know if well, they that's have. a bear case right there. It was. Well, I mean, who knows now? A couple of weeks ago, it would have been a devastating bear case. People feel like confidence in, in Arc may be a little bit shaky, um, but I, I'm, I'm bullish still, generally. At least on the the judgment, with you know, without commenting on the the ETF structure. I mean, I think that the only the big bear case you could have for uh, folks in the Western world owning any Chinese stock is that people fear that it's not as regulated as the the sort of U.S. major exchanges. Where I, I don't know how fair or warranted this is, but whenever I have a, a uh, whenever I'm super long, something like Tencent, uh, and I'm telling people about it, I often will get this feeling of like, yeah, but can you really trust it? Like, mm -hmm. I know they reported those numbers, but like, you know, yeah, like there's like always a little like sh shred of down in people's minds, historically speaking, from Chinese companies. And like, I don't know that that's reasonable anymore, but th that sort of exists for a lot of people, which could frankly be why there's a nice discount on it. Um, well, there's also the like, there is the threat of, you know the government could like nationalize the shares even you know it's traded on the hong kong exchange subject to chinese laws and you know who knows what will happen but i think that's unlikely all right uh i'm gonna go next and then and then we'll round it out here for our public picks this in some ways i think will be surprising in other ways it's not like it's not an interesting pick but it might be a surprising pick so uh, I want to start without revealing the company. Uh, let's take Packy's thesis from, uh, I always forget the name of the piece, Packy, but something about uh, something, Dreams All the Way Up. Yep. Which I loved. I thought it was a fascinating read. Um, go subscribe to Not Boring and check that out if, uh, if you haven't already. So uh, his, his basic argument was that, well, hey, a lot of these prices for assets, for tech stocks that are not in Fang M um, or FAMG, but I, I, I'm going to stop pronouncing that right now and not make any more attempts at it, uh, seem crazy. Uh, but really, the way we should look at it is, look, these big tech stocks have gotten so valuable on very fair multiples that the way you're valuing everything else in the market that's technology is that, um, you know, does it have a chance of being one of these close to $2 trillion companies in the future? So let's take that at, at sort of face value. But, but if we look at, at these sort of um, Feng M companies, there's one that's not really valued like the others. 
And if we look at, let's just look at multiples of revenue alone and let's take out Amazon because they're a retailer, they have a totally different market structure, but you're just looking at you know, Facebook, uh, Apple, Netflix, Google, Microsoft. Well, Google, for some reason, is only like a 6x revenue multiple. Whereas some of these other ones, Microsoft's at like a 10x revenue multiple. Uh, you're looking at Netflix at like seven, eight, somewhere in there. Google, for whatever reason, has this discount kind of compared to all the others. And so if what you want to say is these companies are valued fairly and they're, they have unbelievable moats and they have, they're going to be the juggernaut, juggernauts for the next 20 years in technology, well, Google's just not as richly valued as the rest of them. And I see no reason why Google's business would be any less enduring. I mean, I don't think anyone in the last 15 years who's had an answer, uh, who's had a question, didn't go to Google to answer it. And I don't see that changing anytime soon. I also think their advertising business is super durable and they've been really successful at increasing that ad load over time. Um, you could say, oh, they're gonna saturate the market because basically the whole world's gonna use Google and they get, just can't jam any more ads in. Um, so that would be sort of the, the bear case. but. To me, it's hey, well, I'm, got YouTube I'm long. Too. Totally, yeah. totally. Which is obviously still still a huge growth opportunity for them. So I, I think the way I'm sort of looking at this is like, well, these big tech stocks are fairly valued. They're juggernauts. They're defensible. But Google, for whatever reason, is getting the short end of the stick based on the rest of them. So do you think so there's an arbitrage opportunity? Maybe that's all it is. Um, the question, like, if it, if there's an arbitrage opportunity, it requires that uh, you time the correction correctly to say, you know, I'm gonna get in where this multiple is low and then get out when the multiple trues up. Um, I don't know. I, I would look at it as sort of a buy and hold, but you're able to get in at a slightly lower position than you would be uh, with uh, with some of these other companies. Hmm. Yeah, I guess the so bear that's case that's on. I, I mean, I like it, and I I've thought a very similar thing. I guess the the bear-ish case on them is they've done a fairly bad job, at least on this short time horizon at other bets. And so like, that's been this whole yeah. disaster of a thing where they pour money in and they have not done, other than YouTube, nearly as good a job as the other FANG companies at, at uh, <laughs> taking their big stores of cash and doing something. When you look at Facebook, they have Instagram, they have WhatsApp, which will be a juggernaut when they decide to turn it on. And on top of that, Facebook Reality Labs is like this insane call option that is not being priced in right now and has, yeah. I think the information reported 10,000 people on it. So like Wild. just like yeah. a massive team, they, they must feel fairly confident that they're gonna be doing something pretty big there. Whereas Google hasn't done that as much, ad growth is slowing a little bit. And if you go back to David's point, or just David's region, I think like China may suggest that there are ways that people are gonna access information and products that skip search. So every piece of TikTok success, any, you know, mm. pop shop or, you know, social shopping competitor, anything like that, that moves people away from the search engine as their starting mm. point, or even Amazon kind of, you know, becoming the destination or yeah. Facebook yeah. doing a better job with integrated shopping, like anything where you can much more easily directly get to your destination is a long-term threat to Google. So I would say that's well, the bear case, but I agree. The fall of Baidu in China. Exactly I mean, right, yeah. Not really relevant anymore. Why do you think Google didn't seem to be in the running on Slack? I wrote a whole piece on why they should acquire Slack. I thought them, yeah. like Slack plus Google, 
is a suite of stuff that for younger companies is what takes on Microsoft Office. And like, it just 100%. seemed like such an absolute no brainer. I compared their search revenue to essentially like to Middle Eastern oil, where they're taking this money that they know is going to dry up and reinvesting it in growth engines. And that's really what Google's massive high margin search revenue is right now. And I don't think they've done they've spent a bunch of money and they've made a bunch of acquisitions, but I don't think they've done nearly a good enough job allocating capital as they should, given the over, you know, a 10, 20 year time horizon, the the waning relevance of search. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's super fair to, to be critical of Google as capital allocators. Like they, they have not been anything, they have not been successful in anything but their core business or things extremely related to their core business. Um, YouTube through acquisition, but they built most of that business inside of Google. I mean, it was it was very small when they they bought it, and actually in quite a bit of legal hot water. The the thing that comes to mind to me on a Google bear case would be David and I just did this Meituan episode on acquired, and we were like, oh my god, these Chinese companies are so good at at being Berkshire Hathaway like 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 yeah. making other bets that are totally unrelated. And then obviously this is not like Berkshire, but uh, you know, finding ways to do things like amortize their cost of customer acquisition across all these different transaction types and revenue lines. And you look at like Amazon's been good at that. Apple's found more and more products to sold me sell me over the years. Google has been pretty garbage at at being able to Although sell me I, anything else. I would argue though Google's been a sleeper on this though that people might not give them enough credit for. One the, historically their acquisitions were fantastic. I mean they've got what five or six of our acquired top 10. I was going to say yeah. But they've got Google Ventures and probably even more impactfully Capital G that they're just funneling balance sheet cash into gosh I, don't know. I mean they're probably I would guess deploying I don't know for sure. You know, friends at both but um both places but probably deploying two billion dollars a year into other companies right now so like you don't hear about it or think about it but they are actually doing that i mean it'll be interesting to see if we see more progress on on waymo or maybe some of the more biotech focused stuff like to your point the the ten thousand people at facebook's reality labs like that's a massive statement and feels <laughs> like something could really manifest from it. It feels like Google's other bets have sort of been a little bit uh, under the radar, but who knows, maybe there are call options too that could manifest in some meaningful way. Yep. If they figure out how to extend lives, that's a, that's a big win. Because then you can serve so many more ads. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> when you're in lifetime value. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Packy, bring us home on the on the public markets, and then uh, then maybe we'll invite a listener or two up for some public market picks before we get to private markets. I love it. So my if if Mario's pick was something that's been growing really really quickly and doing really really well. Mine is one that has not been at all and probably hasn't, frankly, gotten crushed nearly as badly as it should because of the market that we're in. But my pick is a company whose revenue dropped. 45% year over year, open door. And so oh, I was I'm thinking gonna, Airbnb, but yeah, okay. Yeah, so I'm gonna hedge that and I'm gonna buy, I'm gonna take 80% of my allocation, I'm gonna throw it in open door, and I'm gonna throw 20 in Zillow. And the reason that I'm gonna I do that is we both, get allocations now. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm long the transformation of residential real estate. It's a massive market when you're talking about you know trillion plus dollars in 
in volume. So it's just, it's an absolutely massive market where the process sucks. Over the past year, we bought and sold a house of state. Both sides of the process were absolutely miserable. Um, you know, Open Door is, I think it dropped from nearly $5 billion in revenue to about $2.5 billion in revenue. It's trading at a $15 billion market cap. And revenue for Open Door is a really generous term because they're talking the full <laughs> value of the home. The flip mm -hmm. side of that is that their margins look way shittier than they than they should. So in a mature market like Phoenix, they're at like a 4% margin and 3% after interest. But that's, again, because wow, you're talking that's about... that's actually really good if they're taking... 3% net on home sales. That's exactly. That's so great. when you look at the dollar number, it's $11,000 per home. And if you're also taking the risk on owning that home and putting it on your balance sheet. Like you can call that revenue a hundred percent and they have. And so the, the challenge that they're in right now is that they wanted to offload that risk, which they did in the middle of coronavirus. And so this past quarter, they did like a little over a quarter billion dollars in revenues, so just minuscule compared to what they've been doing because they got everything off of their balance sheet for the most part. And so now they're building it back up. They're gonna be in two times as many markets by the end of this year. I, I like them on the iBuying side more than uh, I like Zillow. I, the, the argument for Zillow is that it has this funnel where everybody's going to Zillow anyway, and then you push them down, you buy sales. But uh, a point that when I wrote about them a while back was made as I was doing the research is that that actually doesn't matter as much in iBuying because it's the biggest transaction you're ever going to make. So you're certainly going to shop around. Uh, and so really what matters is how good you are at buying at the right price, how good you are at keeping costs down. They have my favorite uh, favorite corporate value of any company I've ever heard of, which is BIPs for breakfast, where they just, everything they do is about removing basis points from the transaction. Plus mm -hmm. they have the opportunity to attach uh, other things like title insurance, which is like this market that is just super high margin. Ooh, Ben's and got an investment there. Oh yeah. I'm familiar. Oh, talk, talk you your own book. Talk your own book. Go for it. Talk okay, it. So jet closing is a PSL spin out and this market is like unbelievable. The, the fact that people still have to buy title insurance is like this enforced legislated racket. The claim rate on the number of people who actually have their title contested on their homes. Like what is this? 1800? So it is, uh, it is ridiculous that we all still need to buy title insurance. It is ridiculous the way that it's priced. And then, of course, it continues to be ridiculous that the, the person or party responsible for um, you know, facilitating the transaction for closing is the title insurance agency. So there's this very sort of strange combination of factors here. Of course, I'm not representing the opinions of the company of Jet Closing or anything like that. But when we sort of realized this, when we were helping to start the company, yeah, it was just this, this crazy combination of factors where you're like, there is so much economic opportunity here. And of course, it's the worst consumer experience in history. You go to a place and you sign your name, including your middle initial and your full first name 80 times, your hand hurts, you get car like, so yes, the opportunity to, to, to both capture that revenue, um, but also to make that process better, like total no brainer. 100%. So I could like, just very clearly could not have said that better myself. That was very well done. <laughs> uh, but they have, I think title insurance is the big one, but they have opportunities to attach a bunch of this stuff. And then for Zillow, for even for Airbnb, for Open Door, for all of the real estate tech companies, my big bet, and particularly now that I've seen the light and uh, lived in Miami for a month, is that real estate... <laughs> 
real estate is going to become more liquid. So I don't know if that looks like an open door Airbnb partnership or a Zillow Airbnb partnership, or, but that is going to be real estate is going to become more liquid. And I think owning real estate is going to become more and more liquid. And there's a bunch of startups thinking about different ways yeah. to buy houses together and stuff. But open door feels like it has a cap or the cap receipt where they, where they can just sell off their risk as equity to people who want to own homes in different markets or build a Phoenix index and a Philadelphia index in short cities and go long cities. And so I just think like the amount of things that they can do if you own enough supply and, and you're even in the top three in that space, there's just infinite things that you can do to make that process better and then do other things on top of it. It's but I could look like a total idiot on this because again, well, they've gotten crushed and it's the highest, it's way higher risk than an ad, you know, a Facebook ad or something. And here's the thing. So as obviously someone who's looked at this space a lot, Jet Closing's doing super well and partners with a lot of these iBuyers in addition to going sort of direct with, with real estate agents. The thing about the iBuyer model that's a little scary is, of course, all these companies are growth companies. Um, and we should also highlight Fly Homes in Seattle is a great company that has a little bit of a different model, but Andreessen Horowitz backed. Um, but all the iBuyer companies, they're growing. They're taking a certain amount of risk, which they're on... A, kind of a nice edge on being able to make sure that they predict the price that they should buy and then make sure that they can they can sell any single day that they get caught in a in a market correction will have been the worst day in the company's history to be caught in a market correction because they'll be holding more risk on the books mm. than they've ever held before by nature of being a growth company it's kind of like these companies with like a uh uh the the, the uh I guess positive cash conversion cycle, but basically, it, you always need to spend to grow. So the faster you grow, the less money you have. It's sort of that negative characteristic of a business. This is an allegory in the risk space, where the the better you're doing, the more risk you're carrying. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. So yeah, um, I think I think this could be a twenty x, or it could go to zero at some point. I think those are equally likely. We got to get. Making venture bets in the public market here it's great <laughs> we gotta get chamath on the next uh the next pod here get his video yep. um all right before we go on to private picks uh we'll bring up one or two folks to talk public companies it looks like vishesh you've had your hand raised for a while let me see and feel free to do this up. either to if you have an educated opinion on one of the companies that we're discussing that would be great um feel free to to, to chime in on something we missed or if you have a, a, a new one you want to suggest, uh, we'll, we'll do some, some sort of brief uh, brief pitches too. Oh, is my mic okay? Can everyone we got you. We got you. We can hear you. Perfect, perfect. Paki, actually, I wanted to ask you about Open Door because uh, you mentioned that they're eating pips for breakfast and that's the, problem. that's the point of the business model. What happens if the most important pip starts going up? The interest rates on treasuries and... Uh, the mortgage rates that these guys are paying and at the same time, their corporate costs start going up, you know, just keeping the business afloat. Uh, has that factored in? Is that something that concerns you? A hundred percent. But I mean, I, I do think this is all relative a little bit. I think they do have uh, among, you know, probably close to Zillow, maybe a little bit cheaper than Zillow actually, because they've been borrowing for this for a little bit longer uh, and and have a pretty strong capital markets team over there. But I think all of this is relative. They are able and they have their curves down to a pretty strong science where they're able to say, we want to be able to buy X number of homes in this market. And we know that if we 
bring in our margin by 1%, we'll be able to win this many more deals, et cetera, et cetera. And so they have their curves pretty dialed into the point where if rates shoot up 10%, then yes, I think there's going to be a, an issue. I think it's going to distort the home buying market in all sorts of ways and maybe make somebody with access to the capital markets to, at the scale that they do actually a better buyer relative than relative to individuals and might necessitate new financing models that they can facilitate. But certainly it's it looks very nice to be able to borrow money right now to buy homes at all time low rates. So they'll need to get creative and it becomes a little bit more relative if rates go up. But I do think relatively they're well positioned if rates go up. Think the differentiators technology like just because of the algorithm that they're using to select these opportunities that sets them apart is is that the pieces basically the algorithm is good the supply chain like all the the crap that goes into knowing what in what particular market makes a price go up what the cost of uh, remodeling flooring in phoenix relative to Dallas is, uh, I think they have, a, you know, lower cost per square foot on flooring and carpet and all that stuff, I think, you know, to some extent goes away over time as Zillow gets more and more and more scale. But right now they have that advantage. And I think the more you get ahead in this space, the more of an advantage you build up. So huge hit in coronavirus and it showed up in their numbers. It's a long-term hit also, huge hit having to stop that momentum and sell off the whole portfolio. But to the extent that they can pick that back up pretty quickly, the faster you get ahead, the lower your costs become because of scale, the, fast, the further ahead you're able to get by either lowering your own margin and staying competitive with the other guys or increasing your margin right now. Hey everyone, this is your crack editor, David here. Unfortunately, at this point, we experienced a massive glitch on Twitter Spaces that kicked everyone out. We had to restart and restart the space, have everybody join again. Unfortunately, that meant we were no longer able to capture the audio from the audience. So from here on out, the voices are just ours. We're picking up with a question from Julianne about all of our views on Stripe. I am, I, I just sold my house and my baby to just try to be able to afford <laughs> oh, no. a Stripe allocation. That was, I, I, yeah, I, I would have paid. Not Buja, though. You're, you're hanging on to her. I, I need a backup plan. I need an earner because <laughs> I just pulled everything else off. But 100% a buyer of Stripe. I mean, I think they're doing, obviously, a fantastic job at the core business. They're eating more and more and more fintech. If to the extent that Google is not a good capital allocator, it seems like Stripe is in a bunch of deals that make a ton of sense. It's also in Fast, which I cannot wait to read the explanation uh, of why they invested in Fast. So that's maybe like the one bear case on, <laughs> on Stripe. <laughs> but my God, I would have, I mean, like there is certainly, there probably was no dearth of like shittier funds out there who were willing to pay 200 billion for Stripe. And so I think they, they put together a round of investors that they wanted strategically. They got Ireland involved in it at a valuation that seems very much more than fair. The Without they got Ireland involved in it is amazing. Well, they already had Scotland, so. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's, let's do some quick math on this just for everyone sort of trying to figure out what's going on here. So in the press release, they announced that they were doing hundreds of billions of dollars of transactions a year. So let's 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 go minimum. Say they're doing 200 and 200 billion in GTV 
Um, and at 3% take rate for credit, you know, for credit card processing, that probably puts them around, help me do some quick math here, 6 billion a year in, in revenue. Does that, does that pencil? So then we're looking at a revenue multiple here of, uh, 15, 15, 15 X. I have a question for the group that I think is, unless anybody has a, has a bear, would Actually, you I got, I got one real quick was um, we uh, Honam at uh, Altos had a great Twitter thread that Ben actually jumped in more over than me over the weekend. But um, I didn't realize how much processing Braintree is still doing. I think it's still bigger uh, than Stripe. Uh, yeah, so we should thank Ian Sigalo at Graycroft uh, for for sort of doing a little bit of research on this. But um, yeah, it, I, his posit was that uh, Braintree is actually still a little bit ahead wow. in transaction volume. And if you look at uh, its sort of contribution to PayPal's market cap, I mean, do, do they have a $100 billion asset in Braintree? Obviously, it's it's likely not, uh, you know, having not won the hearts and minds of developers, it's likely doesn't have as durable a long-term competitive advantage, again, quoting Ian there, as, uh, as Stripe does. But uh, I think that's a... David and I, I, I think it's safe to say we miss that in uh, grading the best acquisitions of all time because we mm. thought Braintree Venmo was about Venmo. It was very much about Braintree. Interesting. Right. Sorry wow. to interrupt, Packy. Go for it. Uh, so my question is, the Collisons leave Stripe. They're raising money with a deck pre-seed. <laughs> <laughs> Do you invest at a $95 billion valuation? How much no. is the not boring syndicate putting in? <laughs> That's what I want to know before making my decision. But honestly, in these capital markets, do you invest at a billion? Yes. E I mean, easily. No brainer. The Collisons are starting a new company, nothing at all. You invested a billion dollar valuation. Oh, I said there's a slide deck. Looking yes. at the deck. We have found the top signal, ladies and gentlemen. Without even looking at the deck. Well, it'll it should go without saying. Just to round this out, I'm I'm uh, I'm a buyer on Stripe at this valuation. In fact, uh, pa Packy and I own a small piece of Stripe uh, because we uh, the the Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. I think one out of every two hundred, uh, like what is it fifty fifty cents out of every hundred dollars that it owns are of Stripe. And I have uh, invested and diluted the crap out of uh, every, myself with everything else that it owns just to get a little bit of Stripe. And uh, fortunately, it owns a lot of other really good stuff too. But uh, but yes. <laughs> I was uh, talking with a friend who was texting me and saying, I think I've told you guys this before, but um, who was basically like, do you think there's any way we could get Stripe access beyond us creating a company and selling it to them as a scheme. <laughs> I was like, I don't know. I don't, I think that might be our best shot. Uh, but Bailey Gifford is really the best shot. So, um, Cortland Allen and indie hackers. There you, you go. Know, look, he's, he's smarter than all of us. No kidding. Just sell your bootstrap business to Stripe and, uh, and go get the shares that way. Brilliant. Um, well, Julian, thank you. Uh, not not the last time we'll talk about Stripe on this show, I'm sure. All right, there, there's definitely some other folks uh, with with hands raised, which I don't think is the nomenclature since we're not on Clubhouse, but with uh, the requested blue dot. Um, if if you folks are going to stick around through the uh, private market section, we'd love to hear your 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 thoughts afterwards. Um, but let's go around the horn and uh, and dive into the private stuff. Should we do snake snakes style? Yep, let's do it. 
All right. So I am going with Republic. So uh, I was ooh. so close to doing it. <laughs> <laughs> so Republic, for those who don't know, is a little bit like Angelist uh, on the venture side. Plus, they have a bunch of they have a dedicated kind of crypto area. They have a dedicated video game vertical. They have a startup investing vertical, uh, and they have a real estate vertical. It made news over the past week because the crowdfunding regulations in the U.S. just got raised so that you can raise $5 million through crowdfunding, Reg CF. People can invest tiny amounts of money. And so Sahilavinia at uh, Gumroad just raised $5 million, like $100 at a time through uh, through Republic. They also, and this is why I love the AngelList model as well, and this might be a pick on a future show, but they're taking equity in deals as they get funded on the platform. So there's this upside, they take mm -hmm. fees. So there's something there. And on the crypto stuff, you know, I think they're accumulating crypto holdings as they've been pretty early in the crypto space over the past few years. And so I would imagine they're sitting on a bunch a uh, bunch of crypto holdings there as well. But I, I think the, the really interesting thing about Republic is that even if you had asked me this like six months ago, I would have said, I, I don't know, I think Republic as part of your raise is maybe a negative signal, but it's almost flipped and they've really yeah. leveraged the the people who are fundraising to go out and spread the word. And so it's really, you know, Wesson Goggin raised for the cohort based courses product. And that was one of the first big examples where now it's the way that you white label your fundraise and give access to a bunch of people who might be supporters without messing up your cap table in too big a way. And so they're jumping on the back of people like Sahil, Wes and Goggin. Um, they, uh, it was a backstage capital actually like has a bunch of their LP money comes from just crowdfunding on Republic. And so I think if you believe in kind of just the democratization of everything, um, I think Republic is a really great bet because uh, it's really kind of the leader in the crowdfunding, equity crowdfunding space. I'm so with you. Uh, I think more and more, I mean, in, this, in the way that we are seeing Andreessen do this, like VCs and investors are going to have to own a version of distribution and offer that to their companies. And Republic is just sort of like doing a runaround on that and being like, cool, here's how you lower your CAC forever. It's by having, you know, 800, 1,000 investors on your platform who are going to evangelize for you forever. Uh, and that's going to reduce your CAC by X percent for the next 10 years <laughs> or whatever it is. Um, and so I think you're right. I think the creator uh, renaissance has been really good for them because it's sort of brought the importance of community to the fore. And... Um, yeah, shown the power of like having this sort of distribution. So I love that pick. It's the mental model I have for it is that you sort of have this scale where on the one side, theoretically, if an investment is available to everyone, you should read a negative signal because there's adverse selection there. Hey, if you didn't get funding from a great VC and you made it all the way to a crowdfunding platform, not a great sign. However, what you're talking about is the intrinsic benefits of having a super broad supporter base, which that ha seems to have tipped very recently here, where it's now uh, now that enough credible founders have said, hey, I want that intrinsic benefit mm -hmm. that it, it no longer has that adverse selection signal that it sends. Exactly. Or at least that's, that's your posit. I, I would say um, absent a few sort of like 
top 1%, you know, news making companies, it probably still does. Like I have to imagine if someone were to come and, and pitch, none of you guys are, uh, are VCs except me now. It's kind of funny. <laughs> uh, if, if we're someone to come, come and pitch me and say, Hey, you know, um, you know, you can go to this website. Anyone can invest there. We're also looking for a lead for our round. I'd sort of cock my head a little funny, like, Oh, huh. Okay. But like all it takes is two or three times where that happens and then that that company goes on to be super successful where you're like, and that's not a negative signal anymore. And it takes that sort of conviction on the institutional investor side to um, recognize that for the intrinsic value absent having it um, sort of force you to make a mistake a few times. For sure. And I think it's still easy to raise if you, you know, it's, it's a way that you can go even if, if you don't have a chance of getting a good lead and all of that. So like, it is not necessarily a positive signal that you're on there and, and the intrinsic value might be outweighed in a lot of cases. I just think that a lot of the negative signal has been has been knocked out by a few of the the recent deals and it really just depends on the deal dynamics. If you're doing this as something in an oversubscribed round anyway and you're fighting for the little guy investor by saving room in the crowdfunding, then I think you can really make it seem nice. Now what Stripe should do is take 50% of the company in exchange for selling a bunch of Stripe shares on Republic and then that just seals it forever. It all comes back to Stripe uh, all... every time. <laughs> <laughs> just every single time. Ben, are you up next? I think I am. So my private pick is someone that we had on the Acquired Limited Partner Show just before the pandemic started. They're a remote first company, but they always have been. Zapier. Ooh, Great. Strong uh, pick. Strong so pick. Strong. So uh, Wade from Zapier, obviously. Are we super ever not going to like each other's picks? Uh, well, <laughs> somebody's got to play like devil's advocate here. I know. Uh, I, I listen, like I were, there was doubt cast on Packy's pick of Open Door. I was going to say. Well, we were also being very nice because that's who we are on the inside. I don't <laughs> think it's actually that true. It's just that I'm not knowledgeable enough to be mean. It's like Packy's like, I, I, I don't really feel great about Open Door, but Packy knows way more than me. And if Packy says it, I'm like, all right, he's way smarter than me about many of these things. Like, I'll buy it. Um, but look, Mario, Ireland is right. So, you know. <laughs> is Ireland an Open Door? No, I, no, I'm just like, I want to use that phrase more and more. Ireland is in. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but going back to Zapier, so uh, the my, my sort of thesis here is... Uh, uh, no code has become mainstream. Whether or not engineers like it, it is the way that a lot of internal operations happen at companies now, where no one's waiting around for the developers to build an internal tool anymore. Like you're just stringing it together with no code tools. It very likely makes its way into customer facing stuff. And like the pace of innovation inside of companies because of no, tool, no code tools allows non designer, non developer, non PMs to sort of burst through and and actually you know build stuff that's so valuable that it ends up being a part of the the customer experience or at least the internal customer experience so stating that to be true zapier no matter what no code tool set you're using whether it's you know webflow for your website and a little bit of your your sort of um, marketing website database type functionality uh airtable for you know uh the 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 programmable spreadsheet for lack of a better term, or what most people actually just do is Zapier and Google Sheets and use Google Sheets as uh, a, you know, a poor, like a poor database. Um, the Zapier ends up being sort of the glue that holds it all together, no matter what set of tools you are using in your no-code infrastructure. And so to, to um, throw out some numbers, 
Uh, they've been profitable, I think, since 2014 or 15, maybe 2016, something like that. Uh, they do over $100 million in revenue now. And you have to imagine, thinking about what Zapier does, this is crazy high margin revenue. Like that, that this is 100% software. Uh, it has a gigantic moat around it because it has integrations built for every tool ever. Like it's really hard for anyone to compete at this point because the you can kind of like, if you're going to build a no-code setup, you just look at Zapier and you're like, well, they're already integrated with everything, so it's hard to imagine picking something else over them because the most tragic dead-ending experience you could have is if you standardize on some infrastructure and then it doesn't have that connection, you're like, well, I just can't use that tool because it, it can't fit into my infrastructure because my glue layer isn't gluing to it. So it has sort of like solidified its pseudo-permanent place as the glue layer. Um, the terms, if you were to invest now, are a little nutty because at that hundred million, I think it's a little more than a hundred million now in revenue from some rumors. Uh, but uh, Sequoia bought secondary shares at four billion dollars, so it's a forty x revenue multiple, which mm. is not the highest that we're seeing right now for for hot SaaS companies, but it's pretty freaking high. Um, so you just got this company that's all margin. It's at the the back of a secular trend. Uh, Everybody at the company is super well incentivized because they've only ever raised $1.3 million. And this this transaction they did with Sequoia was all Amazing. secondary. So lots of, uh, of equity upside for everyone, especially the founders, for them to do well. I just think, um, yeah, th this company's got a lot of room to run ahead of it. Uh, two points. One to Zapier, one in general. Um, I mean, we the other nice, amazing thing about the company is they have like the best most natural land and expand <laughs> uh element of their business model like we feel it acquired we use zapier for a lot of acquired for the lp program and like as the lp program grows and you know we've got more entries on the spreadsheet more zaps firing more emails getting sent we pay zapier more each front each month it, it's astonishing what we what we pay zapier now but it, <laughs> yeah. it really is like it, it holds it all together we have a slack we have a mailchimp so we've got email marketing you know we've got um, the, the, the paid program, we need to, to track, uh, every, every metric you'd want to track in a paid program churn. And, you know, when you want to model it yourself, you want to do that in a spreadsheet, you want the spreadsheet to stay up to date. Zapier is required to keep things up to date in real time. It's, it's astonishing what it lets us do without actually having to build or buy a tech platform ourselves to run the business. Totally. Uh, and then the other meta point I wanted to make, I think it's appropriate for all private market companies these days is like. I really feel like there's two there's two paths you want to be on as a private company. You want to be on the Zapier path where you basically raise no money <laughs> and you control your own destiny. You get profitable early, you build a real business, and then like you wake up five years later and like you can have this incredible business and sell secondary shares to Sequoia at a four billion dollar valuation. <laughs> or at the total opposite end of the spectrum, and this will be <laughs> my private pick in a minute, you should raise a boatload of money out of the gate and do the, like, uh, I think either boys talked about this with the fat startup approach, you know, the, the go really big. Um, and what's interesting to me is that, like, both of those work really, really well or have worked well over the past few years. But canonical wisdom used to be to do the middle, <laughs> you know? It used to be that you were supposed to raise an appropriate amount of money and then another appropriate amount of money and then another appropriate amount of money. And that just feels like not the right approach anymore. That is interesting. Yeah. I, I always, I think of like the fat raise as like almost a, did you guys ever play hearts, the card game? Yeah. 
it's like the shoot the moon strategy. You're just like, fucking let's yeah. go. And maybe this isn't going to work, but like, you know, we're going to go as fast and as hard as possible. Yeah. My, my advice often when people are raising venture money is to first try and talk them out of it and say, Hey, like, what if you did this as a lifestyle business and maintained all your option value? Because once you go the taking, you know, I, I do like the, the analogy of venture capital as rocket fuel. Once you put rocket fuel in the business, like it, it better run like a rocket or like it's not, it's a really inappropriate kind of fuel and it's really hard to undo. And I, I think that um, after trying to talk most people out of raising venture capital, and of course it is uh, one of the only types of funding that's available to people who want to start startups or start technology companies, which is kind of a shame because it doesn't fit most of those types of businesses. And most people don't have the, the personal runway to be able to bootstrap for a while. Um, so, you know, most businesses shouldn't raise venture capital, then most of the businesses that do raise venture capital also shouldn't have raised venture capital. But my advice is always like, hey, don't do this and maintain option value. Or if you do, be really ready to shoot the moon. Mm -hmm. Like sign up for that. Because mm -hmm. yeah, totally. that, that's, that's what we're doing here. I feel like what you're talking about, David, with like the two ends of doing it and then Ben as well, is that maybe it's just what happens when you're in the deployment phase. And people kind of know what you're doing. You can actually kind of start something fairly cheaply because you're not like, it's not super unproven and same with huge amounts of money. It's not super unproven if it's really just going out and executing then, and like kind of the playbooks are known, then maybe it does just make sense. If you know what you're doing, you're a proven team to just go raise a hundred million dollars and go do it. I mean, it's, it would be hard for me to tell a founder not to do that if you could. <laughs> So well, especially it, in these capital markets too, it's like if you have the the most available capital to you on the best terms in history, and you have a shot to do this, like, uh, sure, let's think about capital allocation, but also let's just think about life experiences. Like, if you're the type of person who can command that, when else and how else are you going to have a life experience where you can have fifty million dollars in your back pocket to go and build something and and hold on for dear life to try and build? That's a crazy experience. And if you're ready to sign up for it and the market makes sense, like, go for it. Secure the bag. All right, um, let's move on to someone else. All right, I think I'm next in the snake draft here. Um, so my private market pick is a super interesting company called Levels um, that I saw yeah. uh, Henrik Bergen was in the spaces here. I think I, a minute ago, I think he might not be here anymore, but if he still is, would love to hear from him and his thoughts. Henrik's the part of founder of, of Steady Health. Um, Levels, oh yeah, I also want to hear from Packy. But uh, we just did, recorded a um, special episode with Josh Clementi, the founder of Levels, uh, that will air on Acquired in a little bit. And uh, I thought it was a super, super interesting company. We've tried the product. So I should say what it is. It's a, uh, as Josh puts it, an insights layer for consumers for um, continuous glucose monitoring devices. So it's like a matchup of hims and hers and Roman in that you as a consumer, a non-diabetic consumer, sign up with them. They have relationships with a third-party network of doctors and a mail-order pharmacy. They may or may not prescribe you a continuous glucose monitor that they then send you through a mail, through the mail, made by medical devices companies. Um, you wear it, and then they're a analytics and insights layer for tracking your blood glucose as a consumer, as a for for non-diabetics, it's super cool. It's an amazing experience. I got to experience this as a non-diabetic a few years ago 
um, with Steady uh, and Henrik uh, when we were investors in his company. Um, Steady is focused on serving the diabetic population, but Levels, um, I just think like the, the, the two big things that stood out to me from talking to Josh were one, the what can happen when you open up things that were previously reserved for therapeutic use cases to the mass population. Like it's just, it's life-changing what you can learn through these things. Um, I, I learned that oatmeal is super bad for me. Me too. Like that, yeah. That's what I've learned over the last month. Even plain, the most like the good quote unquote good for you oatmeal, terrible for my body. Oh no. I love oatmeal. <laughs> and, yeah. and it might be fine for you, but. And they find, you know, Josh said about 70% of people who use levels, you know, tend to be health conscious consumers and they think like, oh, should I eat oatmeal for breakfast? And it turns out to be terrible for, for them, at least from a glucose perspective, spiking perspective. Um, but the other big thing that hit me over the head was, you know, they've got now, I think a hundred thousand people on their wait list and this is a $400 program. So you can do the math on how much revenue is sitting there on their wait list. They've already had 7,000 people go through. So you can do the math on what their revenue's already been. Um, like the rapidity with which they are scaling and building a big business, even with a niche product in digital consumer health. It's pretty incredible. Subscription revenue, or how does that work? Not yet. Currently, okay. it's four hundred bucks for a one-month program. They want to build in well, subscription. I mean, you get it. You get an email at the end of your month. It's like you could keep going for two hundred bucks a month. Wasn't yeah. this month cool? <laughs> they're so they're uh, they're rate limited right now, though on um, on their access to hardware and just the mm -hmm. logistics of getting it out to everybody. So it, it, that's why they haven't launched out a beta yet. But um, they're working very hard on it, and then it will be a subscription product. And you know who isn't rate limited by access to hardware? <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Packy, come on in. <laughs> because they're working directly with Abbott, which makes the sensors that, that Levels uses, is Super Sapiens, which is another company that does <laughs> continuous glucose monitoring. Got our first portfolio company fight here. This is yeah, I, should, I should say I'm not an investor in Levels, and, but. And I, and I will say, like, I think it's amazing that both are doing it. And like, I think all the better if they can, you know, work together to bring the price down, increase demand, bring the product to a wider audience because they're going through doctors. They're actually able to have it. Uh, they're, they're able to sell it in the U S now, whereas super sapiens is just in Europe and still uh, going through approvals here in the United States. But, the point of Super Sapiens will be that you don't actually have to get a prescription. It already is subscription. It's a lower cost because they have a direct uh, agreement with Abbott, which makes the sensors. I think another rate limiting factor on levels is actually like, I think their their app is TestFlight. Am I correct on that or no? Yeah, Currently TestFlight, only because it's gonna be hard for them to get approved without Abbott a consent, which they, likely won't be able to get because they've kind of gone this roundabout way. So there are a bunch of, I think, challenges that Super Sapiens doesn't face because they've gone the arguably maybe slower but steadier route of working directly with the provider of the technology itself. Now Levels then, you know, to play devil's advocate on my own case, could go say, hey, Dexcom actually just came out with a much cheaper sensor and we're going to be the layer on top of Dexcom. And so they're not you know, 
tied to one provider in the same way that a super sapiens is. And so that's really interesting. But to the extent that the LibraSense blood glucose monitor is the monitor that wins, I think super sapien is super sapiens is in a much better position. This is this is the most amazing pure play like case study in the sort of old world versus new world business model defensibility. Because if you like look at the Ben Thompsonian school of thought on this, in in the modern era, in the internet world that we live in, businesses create their defensibility by aggregating consumer demand mm -hmm. and then leveraging that demand to have leverage over the supply chain, over the sort of creators of whatever they're delivering to the consumers. And in the classic world, the CPG world, you had sort of the the brands, the the, the PNGs of the world had the um, all the defensibility, and then they would sort of force the the retailers to sell what they were going to sell, and then those retailers would force that upon the consumers. And like the the Super Sapiens playbook is very much, you know, lock in the most advantageous and defensible relationship with the the creator of the goods as you mm -hmm. possibly can in the classic CPG way. And then if you're the only one with that, you know, uh, best cost structure and best set of products, then consumers have no choice but to go to you. And it'll be really interesting. And and I think primarily based on timing, like when do certain market dynamics break certain ways? Like when does the FDA approve, um, you know, Abbott to be a consumer, the, the Libra to be a consumer device rather than requiring doctor approval. And, and that'll sort of determine the winner here. But I think that's the main thing at play here is, is what's the, you know, which business model is more defensible in this era. Yeah. I think that's broadly right. I would say it's also totally too different target markets, which is mm. that Super Sapiens is going after top the athletes market, and then right? kind yeah. of working yeah, the market and going down, 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 down to ultimately everybody is an athlete. But I do think from a subscription perspective, that's a stickier group of people. Whereas you might, after a couple of months, be like, all right, I, oatmeal doesn't work. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas if you're training every day and this is cr crucial to this thing that you spend six hours a day training for, like you're going to keep paying or your sponsor is going to keep paying or your college or your high school or your whatever is going to keep paying this thing. And so it's another question is what is the right approach here? Is the direct to consumer going after the, like the four of us on this screen is kind of like tech bros. Is that the right approach or is it going after, and I'm not, I've, <laughs> You are a venture capitalist who builds tech companies. For, yeah, but, you're the only one of us who's a VC, so, you know. Yeah. Uh, VC that's, is the worst. That's the other question, too. It's like really a, you know, it's really like a, a tool that these people need to do this thing that they're so passionate about uh, as well as humanly possible. So it's going to be really interesting. I think they'll both probably do well. It's a massive market and all of that. Yeah, this but, market is so early. Like, they're, they're both going to do great. But I think the, so. The, the the thing that became so freaking apparent on this this episode that we did with Josh and David, we should probably should have like actually released the episode before we did this, so people <laughs> could have listened to it. But um, that that became so apparent is uh, that the the tide or the crack in the dam has broken on uh, for select categories. Hey, it's totally okay for your doctor that prescribes something to you to happen to you via chat in a web browser mm -hmm. and via a form that you fill out. And sure. so like curology for skincare and, and uh, levels for CGM and hymns and hers and Roman. So like uh, I'm excited for this sort of like 
<laughs> let's use it, uh, Mario, Cambrian explosion of direct consumer digital health companies that use that mechanism, of course, not for like, you know, riskier life conditions, but for stuff where it's like, hey, this is like pretty risk free. And it would be great to be able to have like a really great digital consumer experience with high fidelity monitoring all the time for me, you know, even if I'm not going through the traditional medical system. And all of these sort of picks and shovel plays that are going to help those companies scale the yeah. I mean, that's the levels is using true pill. I think I was just going to say true pill. I mean, damn, those are, those are fascinating businesses. Um, Oh yeah. Cause, cause you need the independent network of physicians to make it work. Cause of course these doctors are not employed by levels. There would be an ethical conflict of interest there, but there, as long as it's an arm's length transaction. So there's, there's interesting space for that whole sort of like, who are all the third parties that need to be involved? Totally. Um, Nice. Mine is not a, uh, a healthcare picks and shovel play, although that would have fit in well. It is one that I know my good friend Packy will enjoy because he is wearing the sweatshirt. Um, my pick is public. Uh, we had Yannick in here earlier, one of the CEOs, um, but I think he has unfortunately bounced. But I think public is going to eat Robin Hood's lunch. Um, and there are a few reasons behind that. I mean, one disclaimer up top, I'm very biased. Um, I'm biased because the other public CEO is my old boss who um, ran a company called Andco where I was chief of staff. And we spent many, many days and nights together trying to uh, you know, build that company. Um, and I think he's amazing. But also because the company is just ripping. I mean, um, they, they just raised a new round at a $1.2 billion valuation. Um, obviously, they've benefited from the interest in trading and, and the market volatility as Robinhood has. Uh, but I think they have done an exceptionally good job of capitalizing on the public relations slip-ups of Robinhood in the sort of short term. And looking ahead, I think they have a much more interesting model um, going forward. So, you know, the Robinhood GameStop fiasco. Um, Wait, tell us about their model. What's what's more interesting about it? I, I, I Believe me, I'm going to get there. But let me, let me <laughs> okay. I'm going to start with it's the slow short build. Term. It's a slow yeah. build. So, the short term, I, I think, you know, they've done a really good job sort of pouncing on the Robinhood GameStop missteps by being hyper hyper transparent. You know, they, they basically turned off pay for order flow switched to a different business model and then did some of the most like innovative marketing uh, we've seen in a while by like pulling in Michael Bolton to do a hilarious spot. And so they're just like doing a great job, I think branding themselves as the like true Robin Hood competitor in a way that although there have been the Weebles and you know other, other companies of the world, like it hasn't felt like it was necessarily a duopoly in the same way as it as it's starting to now, I think. Um, and I think that'll be like incredibly capital magnetic um, as as Robinhood goes public and, and so on and so forth. In terms of model, I think they benefit from social from 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 the social element that gives them like such powerful network effects. Um, like I think, you know, it is going to be really hard to layer that on after the fact. Um, both from a moderation perspective, from a cultural perspective. Um, and I think as you like look towards the future, 
there seems to be every reason why there should be a social network around finance and investing. And I think that, you know, they will be able to potentially uh, ride that to a larger outcome than Robinhood might. And and I don't think culturally like Robinhood has put, put those things in place to be able to turn that on, nor have they really seemed that interested in it, right? Like they've all of their product innovations have been more in the direction of becoming a bank. Um, and so, yeah, I, I just think they've done it incredibly savvily. Um, and if Robinhood is selling secondaries at, at 40 billion, you know, I'm very bullish uh, about public being worth more than the 1.2 they're valued at now. Also conflicted here as public sponsors, not boring, <laughs> but I think that, I, I do think that that gets to one of the things that makes them so interesting. Like they were the first real sponsor to come in on the newsletter. I think Katy Perry, who I work with over there is just like, absolutely killing it she's a vp of marketing over at public yep. today they launched banker bags i have yep. a, which are like the the bags that every wall street oh, gets that. when they when they come in and it's just like such a nice kind of like inside nod and a piece of swag that people actually want and talk about uh i have their ip oats over here which is like the mccain the maverick mccain's and obama o's when <laughs> airbnb ipo'd they sent out those boxes so like i think they're just owning the you know, if Robinhood's about gamification and and trading options and whatever, they're about and being very bad at communications. Then public is like from day one kind of counter position against that like terrible being bad at communications thing and just been like, we're going to be out there and we're going to be talking to everybody. We're not only going to be better at communicating, but our product is about yeah. communication kind of within the app. And I think there's a really interesting, you know, Robin gets a lot of Robinhood gets a lot of credit for expanding the market, but I think they've really focused on kind of uh, women certainly uh, to a degree that Robinhood certainly is not, uh, and just kind of bringing trading and investing more than trading to a universe of people that otherwise is kind of not traded historically. Um, and that's been intentional from day one. And you can go back and read their kind of like early fundraise press releases. And, and yeah, I don't know. I, well, I agree with you. What, is, is, the, is the notion behind public that like you're, you can make your portfolio public and share it with people? Is that the kind of shtick? Yeah. And you can also sort of share trade by trade, like, Hey, I'm buying this because of X. Um, and you know, Comment like the idea dinner trading. for stock trading apps. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How yeah. they would categorize it. And you can have sort of conversations around that. So like every time we do an S1 club, I'll usually like post on public a sort of shortened version of like, here's what you should like know about this company. And then there'll be some really interesting conversations that happen. They're very creator friendly and focused in a way also that like, I don't see other trading apps uh, even approach. Like you can have you know, your own branded group chat, you can, you know, start to do all sorts of kind of things. And I think they're really starting to hit a stride even within product. So, you know, now you can start to do these nice little modals where you compare different stocks over time, which feels like this brand new atomic piece of content that like couldn't live anywhere else necessarily than this social network. Um, and, you know, they're switching to a tipping model, which I, I don't know how it's gone yet, but um, at least tipping anyway, like you gave me a good stock pick and I made money. And so I'll No, that's interesting, though. Um, it's like you tip public. So they're moving away from from free trading, which is sort of interesting. Oh. <laughs> it's like so it's like the GoFundMe. Yeah. 
Yeah, they basically say like, hey, it's optional, but can you know, do you want to tip one cent on this trade or five cents? Mm. Um, and you know, I don't have any numbers or anything, but when you open the app, you see like almost all of the trades have tips on them. Um, because well, public- why do people tip companies? Like I've I've seen other people try this, and it's never made any sense to me. Well, like- Earnin does it well, right? That's the yeah, one but what do you think the psychology is? Like this app has helped me so much that I want to tip the entity and its shareholders? Or do people just not think about it and they're like, yeah, I like the brand. I think it's people like the brand. And I also think public has done a really good job in that like, because there's this open feed, there's a certain like status and expectation of like, well, if you didn't tip, uh, like, <laughs> what are you doing? Um, That's smart. So I don't know. We'll see if that part pans out, but regardless, uh, I think they've built something insanely valuable. I like it. Um, should we, in the time we have remaining here, should we bring up more folks from the audience? Yeah. Perfect. Well, I'm going to go to Samir because I know he's been hanging, hanging yeah, for a hey, while. Samir. <laughs> By the way, you, jur- Journal is super cool, man. Congratulations. So for, for folks on the stream, uh, Samir's question, or I suppose Spears' pick, was the semiconductor uh, industry broadly is about to heat up, and uh, uh, TSMC is a quiet giant, and, uh, and and Samsung is an interesting buy. I think the TSMC thing, Samir, is so interesting to me because, like, w- of course, the old world of Intel, we moved from this integrated designer manufacturer to now, like, uh, everybody licenses ARM, does their own little tweak on it, like Apple does for their instruction set architecture. Or I don't know if it's, I think they use the ARM instruction set architecture and then design their own chip that is sort of compliant with that infrastructure. And then TSMC manufactures the chip. The thing I found super fascinating about Apple bragging about uh, all this stuff in the M1 is a lot of that is actually TSMC's innovation. Like Apple was, they, they had up on the slide, like first ever four nanometer chip or four, four nanometer, whatever it is that is it. Four? Yeah. A hundred percent. And you're like, well, well, yeah. I mean, you guys pay him so much freaking money that like, of course you were first in line for that, but that is their manufacturing innovation. Hmm. And for folks who don't know Samir in, in the room, um, of course you're the the um, founder behind Journal. But before that, you you spent a ton of time doing like heavy math stuff with a lot of machine learning and um, you know da- data science by background. So uh, you're you're my like GPU uh, matrix transforms person. All right, thanks Samir. All right, this is David jumping in again. Quick note: we had a few other great conversations with folks in the audience that unfortunately we weren't able to capture enough context to include here in the recording. But one last one that we ended on, I wanted to make sure we included. The question was how each of us is feeling right now with where we are in the markets and valuations. Um, Given that we all believe in the long-term future of tech and technology, however, as interest rates are rising, obviously we're seeing short-term pressure on tech prices. What are we doing about that? How are we feeling and balancing these two dichotomous ideas? Yeah. That's a great question. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to take a first crack at this. I mean, I hope, I hope that doesn't get boring again. Um, I do think obviously, and I think probably everyone on the stage is a believer just based on the picks the past couple of weeks that tech is probably, you know, interest rates will go up. Other things might happen. Tech is probably long-term uh, the industry that I would want to invest in 
more than any other. And I think we're probably four for four on that. Um, just, you know, I think there's huge compounding advantages that tech has over older industries. There might be the next tech after that that comes in and, and wipes it out, but uh, feel pretty good there. On the passive versus active, of course, I think probably keeping some of your money in passive and maybe the majority of your money in passive lets you experiment. I think public and Robinhood and other products, I don't think any of them would say come day trade all of your money on our platform. I think there is, you know, some portion of your portfolio that it makes sense to to view differently than the retirement money that you might need. I think that, you know, there's a bunch of things that go into the type of messing people do now, some of which is certainly YOLO, but others of which is I follow the shit out of this company. I use Twitter every day. I use Cash App. I do all of these different things and I want to back these particular companies. Uh, and so I think that piece of it is not going away. But I don't think that maybe, I don't know, Wealthfront and Betterment, et cetera, I'm not particularly bullish on. I think there are better ways to express that same kind of hypothesis, which would be just buying the S&P or doing something similar. Um, I don't know, that was more rambly than I than I wanted to get. but. Long term, I think, yes, you should probably never, even right now, be trading 100% of your money uh, in single names and, and just going for it. But uh, I don't think that this type of investing where individuals are taking views on the companies that they use, know, and believe in, I don't think that goes back fully to the way that it was. I worry about this, uh, that, um, let's uh, I forget who the quote is attributed to, but uh, the quote I love about like the true sign of intelligence is being able to hold multiple conflicting ideas mm -hmm. in your head at a single yeah. time. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I a hundred percent agree with what Packy said. I think tech is the future, you know, like there's, I look at the innovation happening. I look at these companies, like a company like square and like, I so much more believe in square's ability to grow and innovate over any traditional financial institution. Um, and yet, <laughs> uh, this past year has been absurd <laughs> and uh you know what can happen from here the, the only thing that i've just personally come around to is um have to be willing to sign up for incredibly long if not indefinite time horizons on pretty much anything i invest in uh and stuff like like the past two weeks you know have um certainly been hard for me i'm sure for everybody else in terms of watching our portfolios and not seeing them go up every day but um but i'm so glad i made the commitment to myself over the past year in my investing that like i uh, unless something fundamentally changes about my conviction in a company i'm not selling you know yeah. um and but i don't i don't think you know i, I don't know that that's a view that the majority of the market out there holds I actually think that's such an interesting point because I, so many people came into the market right around this time last year and bought this dip that I wonder if that changes psychology in some important way that everybody saw that buying the dip actually has this like- That six day dip that we had. That six day just crater that we had back, you know, like a year ago, that was, that was incredibly scary for a yeah. lot of people financially. Yep. And a lot of people poured money in and, you know, today would be the day that if you want to screenshot your portfolio performance for the past year, today's the day to do it because you're going to look really, really smart because prices tanked. But it does feel over the past year and again, crazy zerp, all of that stuff. But like 
buying, not selling certainly to David's point, and then even buying the dip has been the right strategy. That will not obviously always be the case going forward, but I wonder if something psychologically changed where things, and David and I have talked about this a little bit before, but like where things just are getting a little bit faster. So these big dips are happening and something that would have been maybe like a month long thing before that we'd look back on and say like, wow, that was a correction. Just feels like a weird day in the market right now. Faster, yeah. It just plays out faster. And I do think like one of my overall arching hypotheses is that everything is just getting a little bit crazier and faster all the time. Um, And so I wonder what that Will it stay that way? I mean, historically, yeah, right? Like look at, even 10 years ago versus 50 years ago, how fast things move or 50 years ago versus 200 years ago. And it's just like, it just continues to get faster. And I can't, and this could just be from the eye of the hurricane and looking at it and and I'll look back and say, what an idiot I was in two years. And then probably in 10 years, I'll say, wow, things seem really slow back in 2021. But it just doesn't seem like the genie goes back in the bottle where things just like innovation slows down and the, yeah. Did any of you guys see Years and Years, the the HBO miniseries? Oh, no. I think it did one of the best jobs um, of encapsulating, accelerating chaos of the modern era and um, doing some interesting sort of dream casting around what the future may hold. But I think this idea that you can't really step off the gas um, is... Yeah, it's, it's hard to hard to disprove. All right. Well, one one thing I want to close with here on um, holding two ideas in my head simultaneously on this topic is, uh, I of course, asset values eventually reflect the sum of all total cash flows of the underlying asset, of course, and also we've all made a lot of money in the last year by people bidding up assets potentially to to prices that will never reflect the sum of those future cash flows. So you're holding those two things simultaneously and you're deciding to hold. And you're deciding, you know what? Like I am in this indefinitely and I am going to hold on to this knowing full well that the current price probably way too high, but you know, like do do you believe in 50 years that it's going to be even higher? Sure. So you, you hold. And like knowing that, um, knowing that the da- the down is coming because things are too expensive right now, and deciding to hold through that is a fascinating, like yeah. uh, turmoil to be in. Oh, that's a great, great, great question. Great discussion. I think that's a great moment to end on there. Yeah. Well, thanks so much ah, to everyone love who, uh, who joined us tonight. Plenty of good ideas. Yeah. All right, thanks everybody for coming. Thanks, Thanks, folks.